This letter is one of the most favorite letters or books in the Bible to most Christians. And one of the reasons for that is there are so many great verses in it. So I'm going to do a a kind of a a short uh, run through a few of them. In chapter 1, verse 6, "...being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, or that other person that you've been thinking about, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ." And in verse 12, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. In verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, but what things are gain to me, these I count loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And verses 12 to 14, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Doesn't that sound like a song? (laughs) Be anxious for nothing in verse 6, but in everything by prayer... How many times have you given this verse to somebody who was anxious? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your um, request be made known to God. And verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And verse 19, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Wow, aren't those great verses? All of those are in this little book, in this book that has changed lives. But as we go through it, we're going to see a special closeness between the Apostle Paul and the Philippians. It seems from Paul's perspective that no matter what, He thinks things are going to work out okay. But in this book, he has a lot to say about our attitudes as we're going through things. And as the Philippian church was going through things, he's going to talk to them about the process. The last three books we've studied, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, and now Philippians are all, again, prison prison epistles. There were a couple ideas on how Paul... um, spent his time in prison. Some of it may have been at the maritime prison, which is what that picture is. That's the maritime prison, which was on the shores of coming into the area of Rome. And this might have been a holding pattern where people were put in there until they were put into prison. But Paul, being a Roman citizen, we'll see later that he was under house arrest for a couple years. But maybe when he came back after he was released, he may have gone back into a prison like the one behind us. So he first arrived... Uh, in that type of a prison, 
but then was allowed to be in house arrest. And that was where he had to stay at home. Guards were with him. He was able to write. He was able to have visitors. He was able to do the things he had to do until he appeared before uh, Caesar Nero for his trial. Because remember, he had appealed to Caesar when he was in Caesarea before Felix. And he had to wait two years. And the purpose of that waiting was to make sure that you didn't use as a Roman citizen your right to appeal to Caesar arbitrarily, that you thought it out before you said it. Because when you said it, you were put in jail for two years before your trial. So not many people did that. And so Acts Acts actually ends very abruptly. And I want to read you a few verses from there, just so you'll know where we are in the... um, chronological order of the new testament as things are being played out so in acts the last chapter chapter 28 verses 29 to 31 and when he had said these words the jews departed he was speaking to the jews he was disputing with them uh, and they left disputing amongst themselves and paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all that who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And with that, the book of Acts ends, and we're kind of left to try to figure things out from the collection of letters that we have that Paul has given us. It's during these years of A.D. 61 to 62 that Paul wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Philippi was a city that was founded by a Macedonian king named Philip II, named the city after himself. He was the father of Alexander the Great. It had a very strategic location. It was at the base of a, of a range of mountains that separated the pathway from uh, Asia into Europe or from the east into the west. It was a great plain, and it was used for, it was very fertile, and so it was very well known. It was strategic. But probably most famous in uh, 42 BC, Mark Anthony, you remember the movies, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra, and all those players, and Octavian, later who became Caesar Augustus, had a battle there. They defeated two of the Roman generals, Brutus and Cassius. And that was the end of what was called the Roman Republic and now the birth of the Roman Empire. And because the Philippians helped in that battle and they worked so hard for the victory, they were granted citizenship of Rome and they became a Roman colony. Luke called it the foremost city, a colony of Rome in Acts 16. So, Paul was at Philippi, and you remember the story. It's also in Acts 16. He was going out to pray, and a slave girl was following him, and they were saying out words of like this, those who are of the most high God, they've come here. And she was following him, and she was bugging him, and she was causing problems. But then he realized that she had a spirit. And so Paul turned, and he cast out the spirit. And and the master of her, she was a fortune teller. He got upset because there went his money. So he was really upset. But she probably became one of the first um, converts to the church. So the master being a merchant in the city and having some money, he was able to take Paul and, and Silas and the rest of who he was with before the magistrates, the Roman people, and brought him in for trial. And they cast him into prison. And you know the rest of the story. Paul and Silas are praying and singing in the jail. 
the great earthquake comes, the chains are loosed, and the jailer wants to kill himself, but Paul says, stop, do yourself no harm. And the jailer came and said, what must I do to be saved? And he and all of his household were saved. So there's another person that's the beginning of this church in Philippi that Paul's letter is going back to. This is a church plant, if you will. And today we call it a church plant from Paul and what he was doing there. The other prominent person that was uh, in this church at the very beginning was Lydia, a seller of purple, a businesswoman. So in this time of AD 61 and 62, the Jews were losing control of Jerusalem. Nero was out of control in Rome, and the church was expanding everywhere that the apostles went out to, to speak. When Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, we saw that the letter centered on Christ, and it was probably the most centered book written on who Christ is. But in tonight's study, there is a passage that is just as centered on Jesus Christ and who he is. And then Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, uh, telling them their position in Christ and how to live as a church and walk as Christians. And then last week we looked at the letter to Philemon about the runaway slave and how these letters were going back. Ephraim took these uh, letters back to Colossae and back to Ephesus, but in order to get there he went up and around through Philippi, Thessalonica, and those cities. He previously had come from there, and he brought with him an offering. So let's look at that so you can see it. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Oh, that's exciting. There's no chapter 25 there, or verse 25. Ah, turn from Colossians, Mike, and get back to Philippians. That That will help you. There you go. Okay. So I considered it necessary to send to you Ephoritus. It's the same person. My brother, my fellow worker, fellow, fellow soldiers, and but your messenger. That word could have been translated. Well, I won't go in there. That could really create some problems with dispensationalists because that word could be translated apostle, but we won't go there. And the one who ministered to my need. So he had gone there. And then in chapter 4, verse 18... Uh, indeed, I have all abound. I am full re- and having received from Ephoritus the things sent from you, a sweet smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. So this messenger is about ready to take this letter back. So what is Paul's intent with the letter that he's writing to the Philippians? We know that it's joy, but I think the best outline comes from the book itself in chapter four. So uh, looking a little bit ahead, this would be kind of the main point, the thesis that Paul's trying to get across. Chapter 4, the first seven verses. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Judea and I implore Scythicus, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Can you imagine two ladies in the church not having the same mind? And I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labor with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice no matter what. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus, no matter what. So, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Oh, had an interesting thing happened at dinner. This was kind of exciting. Do you know, Brandon, that they're already starting to lobby with what we're going to do when we finish the Bible? So they're starting to gather up their forces and people are saying, let's do this, let's do that. I think that's exciting because it shows us that you love the study of scriptures. And so as we move forward, we're, we're going to continue to go through the Bible verse by verse, book by book. And uh, depending on the, on the uh, lobbying and the stuff that goes on and uh, what happens is, you know, Genesis to Revelation again, we don't know where we're going. But that's something that uh, we're, we're praying about and we ask you to pray with us. The one thing we know that we want to do, and uh, this is from Pastor Brandon and myself, is we want to expository preach and teach the Word of God. But we also want to hear from the Lord, and we want to look into that passage, and we want to bring a message, a specific topical message, or a message that will encourage and apply at the same time. So pray for us on how we can do that and how we're going to accomplish doing both things, because both are certainly important. So let's pray for tonight's study. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the book of Philippians and all that it means to us. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are Mac users? Okay. Now, you know Macs, Macs don't crash. We know that. That's why we use them. Yeah? Hey, everybody else who uses those IBM ones, they crash. Well, no matter what, okay? Saturday afternoon, about two-thirds of the way through my study, writing out the talk and also making my notes, I got one of those little things, those little balls that goes around and around, and it would not quit. And I said, oh, I haven't saved for a while, and it wouldn't quit. And I let it wait, and I said, it'll heal itself, and it's a Mac, and I don't have to worry about it, and so on and so forth. Macs do crash, okay? So I lost about four pages of notes and writing and I had to go back through it. But that was, no matter what, I will rejoice with the Lord. (laughs) Verses 1 and 2, Paul says who he's writing to, who it's from, and typically grace and peace. And then in verses 3 to 6, Paul gives thanks for them, members of his church. He's writing to his church. You know, as I've been studying this book and reading it, I've really been thinking a lot about you. Because I can imagine writing some of these things to you because you are my joy and you are uh, the sense of, uh, of, of encouragement that we receive from you. And so it's, it's kind of exciting. But Paul is writing to them, giving thanks. He's remembering all that the Philippians had done for him, sending that offering and, and taking care of them. And also more to God, who had worked such kindness in him through the Philippians. They were giving towards Paul both when he was with them and caring for them. You can read about that in Acts 16. The Philippians really took care of Paul when he was there. And when he was apart from them, he wrote, when he wrote the Corinthians letter, which he had written chronologically before this, he wrote to the Corinthians and he thanked them for the Macedonians, for the Philippians who had supported his work. And so he's constantly giving them thanks. For, so let's look at those first few verses. 
I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. Man, I can really say that about you guys. When I think about you, I give you thanks. And every time I pray, I pray for Sunday night Bible study and the people in it. Maybe not each of you by name, but I pray for you collectively because that you are on my heart. That's something that we do. I pray, for, and he said, for your, uh, verse, uh, verse uh, 4, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. We note in verse 4, he makes a request for them with joy. He's in prison. Now, we know in the Philippian jail, that he was in chains because the chains fell off and the gate, the doors were open from the earthquake. It's very possible in a prison like the one behind me, he was chained up at the same time, maybe chained to guards. And so he was in that situation. He was writing to them with joy to the church that started with singing in the jail. And he continues to have joy for them even now. And verse six is a verse that I know we've all used for ourselves and for others. How many times have I reminded myself that what he has begun in me, he hasn't stopped. He's still working. When I mess up, when I fail, I am reminded that he is continuing to work with it. But haven't you given that verse to somebody who's beside themselves, somebody who's ready to give up on the faith? And you say, hey, I got a verse for you. It's from Philippians. It's from Paul's prayer. Let me give it to you. When Paul thought of the beginning of his work among the Philippians, verse 5, from the very first day, it was natural that he thought of them being completed in the day of the Lord. And Paul also expresses his confidence in God's ability to complete the work. It's not necessarily in your ability to complete the work. I know you try. I know we all try. But it's God's attempt to try to complete the work. Spurgeon says this, It was indeed a good work begun in the Philippians and in all believers. The work of grace has, in its roots, divine goodness of the Father. It is planted by the self-denying goodness of the Son. It is daily watered by the goodness of the Holy Spirit. It springs from good. It leads to good. It is altogether good. The work of grace in your life is altogether good. From the beginning, from the first time that you experienced, from the first time you responded, from the first time that the Lord spoke to your heart until he completes it, it's good all the time. In verses 7 and 8, Paul tells of his affection and his appreciation for the Philippians. And it's right for Paul to think of them. Paul's thankfulness and joy and desire to pray for the Philippians is right Because they stood with him in his trials for the gospel. And they received the same grace that he had received. Even calling there in verse 8 for God to be a witness. For God is my witness. How greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Thank you. 
for all you do for Sunday night. Thank you for all you do in helping and ministering and um, doing whatever it is that you do. Thank you. We appreciate that. I, I appreciate it. In verses 9 to 11, Paul prays for them. The Philippians had a lot of love and they showed it to Paul. But Paul didn't hesitate to ask them that their love would abound more and more. Verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and you may be sincere and without offense till the day of the Lord, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I told you that I kind of experienced that I could be writing this letter to you. So I could say, I want you to abound more and more in your love for one another. I want you to be more loving, more kind, more caring. It doesn't matter how much we love others. We can always love a little more. That's one thing that we can do, even though we do love. In 9b, Paul wanted this love to not be blind love. It was love that had knowledge and discernment. And that is so important for us. It's important for us when we're ministering to one another, bearing one another's burdens, reproving each other, correcting each other, working with each other in in those sometimes sensitive things, that we do it with discernment, that we are careful in how we do it. It's not a blind love. It was love that approved the things that are excellent. And so we would work it. It's love that was without offense, it says there. But what about that time that you spoke to somebody and you just really nailed them perfectly? They had done something. You knew it. You went right to them and you nailed them. And the whole thing blew up bigger than life. I mean, it just (laughs) fell apart. And then you go back to the pastor who called you into his office and said, what did you do? And you say this line to him, oh, I was just speaking the truth in love. (laughs) We have to really be careful when we're ministering one to another. We need to be loving. We need to be discerning. We need to make sure that we have all of the facts. In verse 11, the bearing fruit is always the result of being abiding in Christ. John 15 explains that in great detail. As we abide in him, we receive life, his life. We receive his characteristics more and more. And then those are the things that are needed in our life so that we can bear fruit for his glory. Verses 12 to 14 to me is a great proof text for Romans 8.28. I think it proves that Paul wrote 8.28 and he wrote it before Philippians. Because listen to what these words say, verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the thing which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I'm in jail, no matter what, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and in all the rest that my chains are in Christ. I'm not being held by chains of the Roman Empire. I'm here because Christ wants me here. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some indeed preach Christ even from envy. And, well, that's the next best passage. But anyhow, 12 to 14, good proof text. He's in prison, and it's for the furtherance of the gospel. How many of us have gone through a trial, and when we have gotten through the trial and finished it, have been able to relate that situation to somebody and to be able to give them the gospel of Christ because we had experienced maybe something that they were experiencing. So it's evidenced by the Roman guards. Other Christians were becoming more bold. He must have remembered the events that were in the Philippian jail, the things that had taken place. Now they were confident by his chains. They saw that Paul had joy in the midst of this trial that he was in. They noticed that God was taking care of Paul in his circumstances. Even the Philippians had sent an offering over to help with his expenses. And God still could use Paul even when in prison. Now Paul looks at some of the motives of preachers. So ought to be interesting, huh? The motives of preachers. Verses 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in the truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. The preachers of that time, remember the Greek uh, philosophers of the time, Pastor Brandon had explained to us that they would try to outdo each other in their speaking. That was kind of the way that they would get, they were great orators. You remember the competition that was um, covered in Corinthians. They wrote, I'm of Apollos and I'm of a Paul. And Apollos was supposed to be one of those orators who came in and said, I'm a better preacher than you, Paul. That was kind of what was going on. Those preaching the gospel out of wrong motives had selfish ambitions, and that makes them not sincere. And so we have to be careful. Ambition by itself isn't necessarily bad. Doing all that we can do for God's kingdom is a good thing. But if it's selfish, it's wrong. And when it's selfish, it's mostly concerned about what's my image? How do I look? How am I being received? Instead of laboring for True success before God, because that's who I want to stand before one day, is I want to stand before the Lord and him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'd like, you know, you guys to say nice, nice job every now and then, but not too often. But I really am looking for God's uh, pleasure with me and not so much the people that are around us. But he adds in verse 16, add the affliction to my chains. These insincere preachers wanted Paul to admit that, yes, that preacher He's a better speaker than I am. That person is more intelligent than I am. He has a better understanding. A.W. Tozer wrote in The Price of Neglect, this powerful piece, rebuking the attitude of competition among those in ministry. And I'd like to read it to you. I thought it was pretty good. A.W. Tozer has written a lot of stuff. He was a great man. So let me tell you what he wrote. And this is his prayer. Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth. He's a little bit older, so he's 
not just King James English. He's might be even earlier English. Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of my servants, any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine. So be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts. Very well. That is not in their power, nor is mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory such modest gifts as I possess. I will not compare myself with any, nor try to build my self-esteem by noting where I may excel one or another in thy holy work. I herewith make a blanket disavow of all intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of thy people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own, if it is thine own. For what is thine is mine, and while one plants and another waters, it is you alone that gives the increase." What a powerful statement from a preacher years ago. Verses 19 to 20, Paul is, consider, is confident in his circumstances, no matter what they are. Verse 19 and 20. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul knew that the Lord was in control of everything, even though he was in prison and facing a trial before Caesar Nero. He made, then that made the situation look pretty dark. Deliverance would happen through the Spirit of God and through prayers. And his earnest expectation was Christ will be magnified, whether it was in prison with the guards and the, ch- and, and the chains, the trial before Nero, wherever it was, Paul was confident that the Lord would be glorified and it was God's will and God was in control. So, for, so important for us to understand the sovereignty of God and that he is in control. Verses 21 to 26, Paul's um, lack of fear regarding death impacted his ministry. One of, one of, our, uh, one of those verses we looked at in the very beginning, for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, uh, will, mean, will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed. Between the two, having desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, Philippians. And being confident of this thing, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You know, there's a difference between death and dying. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm not looking forward to dying. 
You know, I think most of you would say that because you're believers, you're not afraid of death. You're not afraid of the next step. But none of us want to die. None of us want to go through that process. Verse 23, uh, Paul probably had many motivations to depart and to be with Christ. Going to heaven for Paul meant this. He would finally be done with sin and temptation. He, for us guys who have just gone through the book of Romans, he would be moving from Romans 7 to Romans 8. He would make that step. He would see those believers who had gone on before him. And wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to go and see those people who influenced our lives and who have touched our lives? He would be with Christ in a closer and better way than he could even imagine. So there were some advantages for Paul. The idea behind to depart was actually something that was from uh, ship captains. In the, sh- in the shipping of those days, they would stay in harbor and they would have to harbor down when there was uh, bad weather. And so the captain of the ship said, you know, I want to depart. I want to go across the Aegean. I want to get over to Corinth. I want to get over to Rome. I want to go. But the weather's telling me to hold back. The season's telling me to hold back. And that's kind of the struggle that Paul was going through. So in verse 27, Paul desires the Philippians to work together, asking them to stand fast in one spirit. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Asking them to stand together in one spirit and one mind. I ask you, stand together in one spirit and one mind for the, pro- for the proclaiming of the gospel to the people here on the mountain. If we could come to just that one agreement, that we are going to agree on that one thing and getting the gospel out to all the people in the mountain, we wouldn't have to worry about all the other stuff that we worry about as churches. We would get things done. Look at how the gospel, the word gospel is used here over and over in this first chapter. In verse 5, it says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day. So in the very beginning, the grace of the gospel was there. In verse 12, it says at the end of the verse, the furtherance of the gospel. So the gospel was continuing on. It was growing. And then verse 27, he's saying here that he wants him to stand fast for the gospel. And remember, we're looking at the letters of Paul in a chronological order. So we're seeing some similarities between these letters that were written at the same time. Remember when we looked in Ephesians, we saw that in the very beginning, we were blessed with every spiritual blessing. So that was the beginning. In the middle, we were told and encouraged to walk worthy. That was the growing of what was happening in the church and in our walk with Christ. And it ended with a plea for us to stand strong, putting on the whole armor of the Lord. And then verses 28 to 30, Paul wants to talk about how the Philippians are going to deal with adversaries. He wants them to be bold before the adversaries. The battle is real out there, and it's going to get more real. I was speaking with Don Stewart a few days ago. He comes to uh, K-Wave to do the radio program, and I I ran into him. I said, Don, I said, we're all set for New Year's. I said, do you have anything from current affairs to talk about on New Year's Eve? He says, oh, my, do I have. He says, I just open up the paper every day, and it's a whole new topic of how the Scripture is being fulfilled in the news as it goes day to day. So we're excited that Don's going to come and give us a current update on that. 
But the battle is real. And we are to stand, it says, strong and fearless as we encounter others. And what's the purpose in that? You know what? When you see me stand strong, it makes you want to stand strong. In the early church, when one Christian was crucified, when one Christian was thrown to the lion, when one Christian was impaled on the, on the cross, ten took his place because they saw people standing up. In military ranks, we see over and over where one person takes the hill, other people will follow. It's sometimes that fearlessness and that courageousness. That's what Paul is talking about here when they, when they fight the, the, the foes. In verse 29, it says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to, to, suffer, to suffer for his sake. Can't leave that out. Sometimes there is suffering that takes place and we have to go through it. But we are to stand fast. In chapter 2, he starts with the word, therefore. And he's coming back to these verses 27 to 30, where he's talking about this battle that is going on. Telling the Philippians to stand strong for the Lord against the external forces. That's what he was talking about there at the end of chapter 1. Let's stand strong against those people who are coming at us from outside, those who are coming against the church. Now he's going to say, let's also stand strong against those who are inside the church, inside the body of Christ. Remember those two ladies that we read about? Yeah, they're coming next week. They're out there. There's a lot of little problems. Remember those insincere preachers? They're out there. Remember the ones that are, have selfish ambition? That's who Paul's writing back. And he's saying, let's talk about that for a minute. And he goes into this great explanation of some of the things that we have for Christ. And he's going to ask a series of rhetorical questions Rhetorical question is a question that I ask that you guys already know the answer to. So he starts off, is there any consolation? That word is comfort or the source of comfort. And the consolation is Jesus Christ himself. And it has with it the idea of for distress. Is there any comfort for my distress? In Luke chapter 2, Luke writes, uh, he tells the story of Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He saw the baby, and when he did, he could, he could go and he could go and and uh, and move on. Uh, in Second Corinthians one five, we read: For as the suffering of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Even though we're suffering with Christ and for Christ, our comfort, our consolation abounds in Christ. And in Second Thessalonians, Paul says that God has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. And, of course, there is consolation in Christ. So if I asked you the question today, what, what uh, Paul is going to ask you right here is, is there any consolation? Yes, there's consolation in Christ. There's no doubt about it. It's a rhetorical question. The people in, in Philippi, they knew that. But Paul is making a point here now. It could be said this, since there is a consolation in Christ, since there is comfort in Christ, then we can go that way. He's going to do this four times. The next one is, if any comfort of love, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, God is the God of all comfort. There is no way he can not comfort us. He loves us so much, the Lord comforts us. There's no circumstance, no matter what, that the Lord can't comfort you in. And it's more than comfort. It's the comfort of love. 
You have the ability to comfort one another. You have the ability to listen to one another at dinner. You have the ability to cry with one another. You have the ability to laugh with one another. Because of your relationships and our relationships being so important, you have the ability to affect lives. Now, I could go up to... I'm going to pick on here. Go up to Randy and go up to Randy. And Randy, you could comfort me. Um, You could give me this comfort of love. I could come up to you and tell you my woes and you could pat me on the back or pray with me, you know, whatever. But you want to know something? Mary can comfort me in love a little bit more. She can hold me a little tighter. She's a lot more. Okay, a lot more. A lot more. Because of the relationship. It's not that we don't have a good relationship. It's that we have a closer relationship. Well, then the next one is Jesus. And Jesus is bringing you that comfort of love and able to help us through all those things. So let's look at these verses and then we'll pick up the other two rhetorical questions. Chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So the third one, the third rhetorical question is, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, Paul knew and he valued the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's in prison. He's in chains. He's been on shipwrecks. He's been doing everything else. But every Christian should know that we have fellowship of the Spirit. We should sense the presence of God and His spirits. The word there is koinonia. It means sharing in things in common. We have koinonia when we come together in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit fills and He guides our life. All we have to do is yield ourselves to Him. And the fourth rhetorical question or the fourth statement is, if any affection and mercy... Affection is from God's heart. Knowing that he has a heart for you and knowing that he has a heart for me should be great comfort. These are all gifts that we have received from God. Each of these gifts, consolation of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the affection and mercy of God are communicated to us in two ways. Directly by the Lord through his word and from each other in the body of Christ. I think there is ways for us to comfort one another, to love one another, to be affectionate, to be affect, to have affection towards one another and to fellowship in the spirit. There isn't any doubt that these are real gifts and there isn't any doubt that every Christian should experience them. So Paul now makes his request what he wants says in verse two, fulfill my joy. And by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And we'll, we'll pick that up from there. So, Fulfill my joy or, or bring me joy. 
And it would be wrong for me to miss this. There's so many joys in here. But you all know that joy is Jesus, others, and you. If you keep everything in that order, we'll have peace and harmony and love. Will, and we'll all go on and, and live happy lives. So Jesus is first. Others are next. And ourselves are last. Be like-minded. Be of one accord, one, of my, one mind. And so Paul makes it clear and gives a um, description of how to achieve and practice the unity that he's looking for in verse 2. The attention is to be on others. If selfish ambition, that's a problem. Again, it's not ambition that's a problem. It's selfish ambition that's a problem. Conceit, it talks about conceit there, and that's thinking of oneself very highly. The dictionary defines it as an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability and importance. Haven't we all stumbled over that before, thinking that we're just somebody or that you can handle this better than anybody else? But as we esteem others better than ourselves, when we become concerned about their needs, their concerns, the, this, um, this will lead us to unity among all of God's people. If I consider you above me, and you consider me above you, a marvelous thing happens. A community is formed where everyone is looking up to someone else, and no one is looking down on anyone else. That's neat. If I look up to you and you look up to me, then we're all looking up and nobody's looking down on anybody. We ought to try that. I think that would be cool. So now let's look at Jesus himself, verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, 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 taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let this mind be in in you means it's a choice. We need to make that as our prayer. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says he gave the mind of Christ to all of us. It's given by God. In verse 6 there, it's interesting who being in the form of God. It's a very interesting Greek uh, language there. It describes that which a man or God is in his very essence and which cannot be changed. Let me read that to you again. The word being there, the idea behind it is, it describes that which a man or God is in, the, is in his very essence and which cannot be changed. It describes that part of a man or God which in any circumstance remains the same. That's the innermost characteristics of who you are. It's your attributes. Being in the form of God. So in the being there, uh, he describes Jesus's pre-incarnate existence. What's the question for us? Are we being 
as defined above in the form of a Christian? Are we having that characteristic that is so solid that no matter what circumstance we're in, we will behave like a Christian no matter what? We're working on it. We're striving towards it. But that's where we're supposed to be trying to to get to. In 6b, Jesus did not cling to his privilege of deity. He did not hang on to it. The ESV has a a good, better, I think, a better translation for verse 7. It says he emptied himself. Uh, Kenosis, the idea is Jesus' um, incarnation was essentially a self-emptying. Now, some teach that he divested himself of uh, his attributes, his deity, um, such as his omniscience, his omnipotence, or his omnipresence. But he did not. Jesus could not. He could not become less God. And that's what that would, would happen if he gave up his, his attributes, his, his natural a- attributes. But in the incarnation, no deity was subtracted. He still was God. He still had the power of God. He did renounce some of his rights to his deity. But rather the thing that was humbling for him is he picked up humanity and he added that to his nature. In every way he was tempted as a man. He became like us. And so he gave up all of those things that he had to become one of us. But think of this. Even a king, and Jesus was king, laid aside his tokens, his robe, his, 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 uh, his royalty. He put on the habit of a, of a merchant. He was a carpenter. He was selling uh, furniture, making doors, whatever his trade was. With all that going on, he never ceased to be a king of the highest domain. He still was the king. In verse 8, it talks about Jesus humbling himself. And I try to think about that and look at some ways that Jesus humbled himself. He took the form of a man. He was born into an obscure and oppressed place. He wasn't, a, he wasn't born into a palace. He was born into poverty among de, de, uh, despised people. He was born as a child instead of an adult. He submitted to the obedience as a child to his parents of a household. He learned and he practiced a trade. And it was a humble trade. It wasn't, you know, the, you know, he didn't go to, to rabbi school. He, you know, he, um, he was a carpenter. He had a long wait before his ministry could start. <laughs> he humbled himself in the companions and disciples that he chose, for sure. He humbled himself in the audience that he appealed to and the way that he taught. He humbled himself by going through the temptations that he allowed himself to endure. He allowed himself in the weakness, the hunger, the thirst, and the tiredness that he endured in a physical body. He humbled himself in total obedience to his heavenly Father and choosing to submit to the death of the cross. And of course, he humbled himself in the agony, the shame, the mocking, and the public humiliation of his death. In verses 9 to 11, though, we saw the, the, what comes after humiliation. When we are truly humble, the Lord will lift us up. 
He has a name above all names. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And then in verse 12, Paul begins to exhort and to encourage the Philippians. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I may not have run in vain and labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Work out does not mean that you have to work for your salvation. That would be contrary to Paul's consistent message of grace, justification by faith. And this letter is addressed to saints. Go back to verse 1. It's to saints. So it's not to somebody who has to work out their salvation. They're already saved. The Greek for work out means the working out to completion, seeing things through and having things completed. We are told that God continues to work in and through us in his spirit. You know, the work that God did in the beginning was our salvation. The work that he's doing in us now is our sanctification. And the work that he does through us is our service, our service to one another, our service to our community, our service to our neighbors. And I would encourage you to look for a neighbor, look for someone to do a random act of kindness to this Thanksgiving week, to go up to a neighbor and say, how can I help you? What can I do? I know we've got our own to-do list at home. We've got plenty on, I've got plenty on mine, but what would it be like to go to the guy next door and just say, hey, is there anything you need for Thanksgiving? Is there anything I could do to help you? Is there anything that would uh, make your, your week a little better or your time with family a little better? Let's see. You'd probably tell me to stop singing so loud, but that would be okay. Um, <laughs> but this work will continue until Christ. He's not a believer, and I am, and I'm singing songs for him to hear. So, With a good heart, though, with a good heart. And, the, and, and then the, this work will continue until we see Christ. And then the work will be fulfilled. And then in verses 14, we saw practical ways to obey Paul's exhortations. Christians are to be the light of the world. The only question is, how bright of a light are we? When we fulfill our place as salt and light, light of the world, we should make things evident. We should, people should look at our lives and say, hey, you guys are different. We are used as a guide when we are the light. We can be used as a warning when we are the light. When we are a light, we can be used to bring cheer. You know, when the lights go out real fast, doesn't it give you a kind of a hope when the emergency lights pop on? You know, once in a while we test them to see, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But we do test them. Um, and then when the light comes on, and if we are a light, Don't we make things safe? Isn't it good to have a flashlight in the car, guys? Isn't it good to have one by the side of the bed someplace or someplace where you know you can get to, especially living up here on the mountains? In the last parts of this 
uh, book, Paul goes on and he uses himself as an example in verses 17 to 18. And then he uses Timothy as an example in verses 19 to 24. And then he uses the carrier of the letter, Ephoros, as an example. So I just want to look at Timothy's for a minute here. Verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may encourage may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded. Paul has been telling the Philippians, I want you to be like-minded. I want you to be of one mind. With Timothy, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your needs. Not insincerely, not, not out of selfish ambition, but will sincerely care for you. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. So we want to rejoice in the Lord no matter what. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians. Yes, you have a few problems out there, but you're a great church. You're doing wonderful things. Keep doing what's right. Rejoice. And Paul is writing to them from such a place of imprisonment, but you would never know it by reading this letter. Um, I think it's I think it's important letter for us to read. Um, Pastor Brandon mentioned that you have all week to read it. It's only four short chapters. I would go home, as I suggested to you before. Sometimes the best way to get these thoughts to sink in is to reread those two chapters. They're they're short. They're 60 verses total. But read the the two chapters again tonight or first thing in the morning and then try to read the. Uh, the whole book in one sitting. That's another way that really helps you. And then chapters three and four for next week. 